Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers, and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. And I'm Jeff. And this is episode 439, Civilization Games, with Jeff Gamble. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, friends, we are back, and we are so excited to be here with you this week. We have a special episode. We have our friend Jeff Gamble with us. Hey, Jeff! Hey, hey, hey. How are you guys? Uh, thanks for having me on the show this evening. I really appreciate it. It's been a long time um, since I've recorded anything, and uh, I'm really honored that uh, you guys uh, were willing to have me on so that I could uh, ramble um, as the old man of the mountain about Civilization games. Oh, <laughs> someone's got to do it. <laughs> I love Civ games, but I never feel qualified enough to ramble about them because they don't get played as often. So I'm excited for you to do it so that I can be like, yeah, I like that too. <laughs> there you so, go. Yeah. What he said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Jeff, you're burying the lead a little bit because you have a long, get it long. You'll, you'll, you'll get the mm-hmm, joke in a mm-hmm. second. You have a long I history <laughs> with uh, board it's gaming and, and podcasting. So why don't you tell everyone about your experiences in the tabletop industry and some stuff professionally as well. Sure, sure. Thank you. Um, so um, I started a podcast uh, many years ago uh, called The Long View. Um, 
and uh, was inspired by some uh, great podcasts that uh, were there when I started out. Um, and uh, I just kind of decided uh, one day with a couple of friends to just uh, sort of take a run at it. Um, and so we started a podcast and, and the sort of uh, thing that we were looking for was a lot of the podcasts that we were listening to were giving you the sort of latest and greatest and what was new and uh, talking about the, the newest games. And I kind of had a special spot in my heart for what I guess would be considered some of the older games. And in this industry, of course, that's kind of uh, anything that's probably four years old or more um, yeah. <laughs> is considered ancient. And uh, so I kind of thought, okay, what, what if we had a show that kind of focused on just a single game and um, really kind of took a deep dive into it? And uh, originally the thought was uh, my friends and I, we would kind of get together and we would play a game at least 10 or 15 times or something like that and then do a podcast episode. But uh, we quickly found out that uh, we wouldn't get a whole lot of content on doing it that way. And so uh, what I decided to do was start inviting people on the show um, the way you guys just did and, um, and, and the way you have in the past. You have a guest come on. Um, and so I would try to kind of reach out and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing a episode about such and such game. Um, if there's anyone out there who's really passionate about it, who really has a lot of experience playing that game, um, we'll set up a time and we'll do a recording and you can tell us why you think this game is so special. And so that kind of became um, the, the sort of core of, of what uh, came to be known as the Longview podcast. And um, we did episodes uh, for probably about I think it was close to seven years. So uh, you guys have already been on longer than we have. Congratulations, by the way, on the 10 years. It's awesome. Thank you. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's any kind of uh, milestone like that needs to be celebrated um, uh, because it's a considerable investment, as you guys know, doing something like this. And, um, you know, you stick with it for that long. It's really something special. So um, kudos to you guys on that. So yeah, you did the show uh, for, for a while, really enjoyed it. And then the pandemic hit. Um, mm. I'm a teacher. Um, and so overnight, um, everything changed about what we did and how we did it. Um, my wife is a nurse, and she unfortunately was kind of on the front lines of what was going on here in uh, my region of Pennsylvania, which is in the Pocono Mountains. And uh, I just didn't have the, the mental or emotional sort of energy to deal with anything anymore. So I kind of just, you know, said, you know what, I got to focus on um, the family. I got to focus on the job. Um, and I kind of uh, uh, said a full goodbye to the podcast. Um, so, uh, you know, that was a little bit bittersweet, but it was probably, you know, not a terrible thing. There's been a lot of podcasts that have stepped up um, and kind of uh, do the same sort of thing that the Longview did. So um, that's kind of the podcasting history. As far as my personal gaming history, I've been gaming since I've had kids. Um, you know, my wife and I, that kind of was like our thing to do. Um, we had moved up to the Poconos after we got married and uh, we didn't really have any family up here. So we couldn't really ever go anywhere, couldn't do anything. But what we could do was we could order a game. So our first game that we ordered um, was the Catan card game. And that was our introduction. And then after that, um, we got into Carcassonne. And, um, you know, those games just kind of blew our mind. Like, those were the first games that we had played outside of, uh, you know, Clue and Monopoly and uh, Risk and all the things that most of us grew up playing. 
And so that kind of started our uh, love affair with uh, Euro games and with the board game hobby in general. Had a lot of great memories and time spent doing that uh, together uh, as soon as we get the kids to sleep. Um, <laughs> and then I started bringing board games into my classroom, which I know is something that's near and dear to your guys' heart. Um, and you've, you've talked about that. Um, and, you know, suddenly I was able to get students who were maybe a little bit reluctant in my fifth grade classroom to really engage in some uh, concepts. Um, so for example, when I would teach probability and math, I'd bust out can't stop, um, you know, and, and they would play that. And then we, we kind of talk about why the board looks the way it does and why does it take so many, um, you know, successful rolls of seven to reach the top, but only a few to get to 12 or to two. Do you think there's a reason for that? And so they were able to kind of use games to sort of intuit um, some basic principles of probability, right? Um, or I would use Alhambra to talk about perimeter, <laughs> um, you know, building your your walls because they love playing Alhambra. Um, and we also talked about probability with Alhambra because right on the board for the players, it tells you the tile distribution. You know? So how many uh, tower tiles are out? Um, how many are there in total? Um, you know, what's the probability that, you know, what's the likelihood that you're going to be able to pull a tower before the next scoring? So really getting them thinking um, in terms of that nature and then um, playing games in language arts like uh, uh, the venerable Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Uh, we would do that every time we had our mystery unit and we did uh, The Mummy's Curse, uh, which anybody who's played that game um, you know, knows that uh, uh, kind of real fun. It's something that's engaging to the students and um, they were in teams and competing to see who would be able to crack the case first. And, um, you know, the, the reading and the journaling and, you know, kind of writing down their thoughts about what they would learn from different clue points. And so all of these are, are ways to kind of motivate students and sort of teach curricular sort of ideas and points and concepts on the fly. Um, which I found to be something that was really valuable uh, when working with students. And so um, that's something that I had a lot of success with. Um, you know, at one point I even brought in Washington's War. Um, and when we were studying the American Revolution and we kind of did what ifs, you know, um, what, well, what would you have done if you had been Washington at Long Island? You know, would you have attacked? Would you have retreated? Why was he always retreating? Why, why did he never stand and fight? Um, and so you could really use games to kind of open up a lot of windows um, into whatever the topic was. So I was very interested in that. And fortunately, my administrators were um, equally enthusiastic about me trying to bring things like that in. So that was awesome. Um, as far as the industry goes, um, I really uh, got involved with a few publishers um, early on um, and was fortunate enough to work with some great designers. Um, and trying to just kind of play test uh, or develop games and uh, really enjoyed that. A lot of times I thought to myself, I'd love to make a game and I have toyed around with making a game. Um, and I got one about maybe half to three quarters of the way done. But most of the time I always thought, you know, I'm just not that great at kind of coming up with it out of whole cloth, but I've played so many games I can usually help when it comes to trying to tweak something or refine something or give suggestions. So uh, for your listeners out there, I did a little bit of work on uh, Flashpoint Fire Rescue. Um, our our playtest group um, 
you know, suggested the idea of being able to swap out your roles, which became part of the game. Um, if you've ever played Flashpoint, the roles are awesome, but if you're the, the cast firefighter, um, sometimes you're just useless and you really need to be something else. So we were like, um, you know, Kevin, is there a way that we could have players be able to go and swap out roles? And he said, sure, you know, go back to the fire truck and you can change your role. And that became part of the game, which um, we were really happy about and grateful that, you know, uh, the designer took that input and said, yeah, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. Um, and so I learned a lot about um, design from the designers that we worked with. You know, the you, you can't get your ego involved and you, you have to be willing to listen. And, um, you know, it's your baby. It's hard. It's hard when people are giving you feedback that maybe you weren't expecting or took you from left field. Um, but a lot of the designers that I've worked with have just been fantastic people. So uh, that's one um, that I worked on. I did some work with Terraforming Mars um and uh worked on on that team um again great designers great people to work with uh the Frixellus uh, uh family really um not just the brothers but the whole family and um geez what was, what was the other one um i don't know i forget i'm getting old but anyway <laughs> um yeah so you know worked on some games and so um uh, went to a lot of conventions, uh, working for publishers, uh, volunteering and, um, getting to have those experiences. Um, and, uh, it was awesome. So, uh, that was a part of a, a period of my life that, uh, uh, was just a, a lot of fun. And, uh, now that things are kind of slowly getting back to normal, maybe, um, if anything can be said to be normal in this day and age, um, sure. I'll just let that sit there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of thought, oh, you know, I miss podcasting a little bit. So that's the backstory there. You asked for it and you got it. So uh, <laughs> that probably went a little long, but I'm old and I've done stuff. So there you go. Yeah, no, it's awesome. It's always good to hear like where someone's coming from before we dive in and talk about how that influences everything you play and you enjoy. Yeah, I think we, we each of us have a unique journey into tabletop gaming. and It's always interesting and surprising how or what games really brought us into the hobby and then it, the effect it's had long term and then i guess the thing that most people don't know our friends out there who are listening is the inter the industry itself is very interesting and very small like it looks like from mm -hmm. the outside like these are huge companies these are mega corps and you're just like nope they're they're pretty much mom and pops like you you mentioned terraforming mars and mm -hmm. we, we got to meet some we got to meet two of the brothers including the designer and he was talking about you know, his mom plays Terraforming Mars every day. And she's a, and she's like the ultimate game tester and his biggest fan. And we're just like, of course she is. Because again, That's a good mom. Mars, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. It's a very different industry and it's a wonderful industry because we get to all be at the table together. You know, mm -hmm. media people, game designers, publishers, we're all one big happy family playing a great game. So I love it. I just love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and it's really been inspiring to see how some stuff, um, how it works behind the scenes. Um, yeah. you know, I did a lot of work with Stephen Bonacore, uh, Stronghold Games, right. Oh, and, yeah. uh, back before, um, you know, he basically sold the company and, uh, has kind of gone into, uh, Don retirement, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was one dude, like he was literally one dude running that entire place. And the energy that that guy has is 
um, just absolutely amazing. Um, and if you've ever met him, like he's kind of mm -hmm. just like this dynamo and he's older than me. Yeah. Um, and it's like, where did that come from? Like, how do you do that? And he just, um, just knew so much about the world of business and finance and mm -hmm. was able to bring that to bear, you know? And, and so you have people in the industry that come from very different backgrounds, yes. but they bring a lot of skills with them. Yes. Sometimes 100%. they're artists, you know, sometimes they're business people. Um, and it's really interesting when you see, like you said, what their journey is and, yes. and how they progress. I mean, I was, I was hanging out with Steven when he first really started and was doing basically deluxe reprints, you mm -hmm. know, survive. And, uh, sure. um, what was the espionage game that had those beautiful pieces? I'm trying to remember what that one was called. It was fantastic. Um, deception, I think it was called or something like that. Um, and so there was just, you know, watching that company grow, um, watching Travis's company grow, uh, indie boards and cards and things like sure. that. Um, and, you know, just kind of really spending time with designers like, uh, um, uh, Tim Fowers, great guy, you know, oh, yeah. um, wonderful who does uh, all of those great games like Burgle Brothers and all that. Love those games or a uh, Dr. Finn, you know, Steve Finn, mm -hmm. he's a guy, you know, yes. and he's put out some incredible games like, you know, Biblios is one of my all time favorites. And, um, you know, he's, he's just the, one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. So like you said, Chris, the small industry, it has that mom and pop feel. And unless you're asthma day, um, you know, which <laughs> interestingly enough now seems to be falling apart. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, all of these were just small people passionate um, about making board games for the rest of us to enjoy yeah. and to love and to spend time with. And sure, you know, they made some money, but believe me, they weren't getting rich off of it. Sure. Um, you know, you need sure. to have that evergreen title to be able mm -hmm. to make some decent money. Otherwise it's, it's as much a labor of love as it is anything. Absolutely true. And again, more and more, as we meet more people in the industry, we meet more of our friends and listeners out there. You just, it's, it's a, a passion and love that's undeniable. And as you said before, Jeff, like you bring it everywhere. You bring it to the classroom because you want to kind mm -hmm. of, you know, get more people involved in gaming because it's such a wonderful and dynamic social hobby. And, brings so much to people's lives just it, it brings people together again so jeff you're going to have a amazing feature for us where you're going to talk about civ games which i know is one of mm -hmm. anthony's favorite uh, mechanic area kind of things and so stick around for that because that's going to be hardcore because i love talking about that stuff but before we get into all that in our particular feature review let's talk about the games that we want to get to the table because again they're awesome, they're amazing, and they're going to blow your mind. So let's talk about our acquisition disorders. So, Anthony, what do you have up for us this week? All right. I uh, am a little off the beaten path this week. Is it Arcana? Uh, Is it Arcana? It's, it's not, Arcana. It's, it's not Lorcana. <laughs> it's no. it's got to be Lorcana. Everyone's no. playing Lorcana. You, you've got to be playing Lorcana. It's no, Arcana. The more right? I see about Lorcana, the less I want anything to do with Lorcana. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't even. Yeah. All these pictures. Like it released at the parks today, so I was looking at the pictures. There's like lines that were four hours long at Disney World, where they're preparing for a hurricane. There's people standing in line for <laughs> cards. What are you doing? Uh, good on y'all. Good on y'all. This is fun. the number one Larkana podcast, people. Where we just yeah. we just marvel at the suit. I shouldn't say tsunami because again, those people are going to get hit with water and stuff like that. But 
it is a crazy, insane situation. So, good. Talk about Lurkana or another game if you really want to. It's fine. Another game. We're gonna do another game. All right. Fine. Um, <laughs> so this is Will. This is Will's influence rubbing off on me a little bit. Oh, um, I, met, I met Will. He's awesome. He also yeah, likes Lurkana. Mm-hmm. I don't think he does. <laughs> he does. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Obojima Tales from the Tall Grass. Uh, it's an RPG. It's on Kickstarter right now, and I actually saw this on at Gen Con. They were previewing it, so they had like an early copy of it, and then they had one of those little cards with like scan the QR code and follow us on Kickstarter. And I was like, that looks cute. I will do that. I don't play a lot of RPGs. It's a big time commitment, and with the family, young kids, and teaching, and everything else, it just they often fall apart, and I feel bad about that. So I do own a lot of these books though because they're fun to read. They <laughs> and are. I love looking through it and just seeing all the lore behind it. And uh, the artwork is amazing. So this one, that's what caught my attention. They call it a Studio Ghibli and Legend of Zelda inspired campaign setting for D&D 5e. And it really does look like that. Like the cover is like this big skeletal whale with a girl Mm -hmm. on its head. It's all very bright and blue. Looks very Miyazaki. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... This is on Kickstarter. It's been up there for a little while now. Um, they're up to almost $2 million in funding. Wow. Uh, like 2,000% of what they were asking for. Uh, <laughs> pe- people are all about this thing. So it is a role-playing setting. Obviously, you're on the island of Obajima, and you're exploring and encountering all these fun, quirky little things. There's 60 monsters um, in, in the book, so they've built out kind of this lore. So you have things like a rubble golem, and a sheep nice. dragon, um, like these little <laughs> Japanese-inspired like demon-type things from like Spirited Away, Uragama, mm-hmm. but they're also somehow mm-hmm. kind of cute. Um, and there's potion crafting, so it's very like it's like a cozy RPG, right? It's like in that kind of vein of things, but combined with like that aesthetic from a Miyazaki-type movie, a Ghibli movie, and a little bit of Zelda, right? Because you're doing exploration, you're uncovering different treasures and trying to explore. So. I will probably back this probably just for the book because sure. again I, I I get the books I like to read through them hopefully someday I get to play them. Um, I, sidebar: I recently got a book for um, Tales of Zadia, which is based on the Dragon Prince show that's on Netflix mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. my daughter and I watch, and she saw it in my office and she's like, "Oh, can we play this?" And I'm like, oh, "I have to read it." Literally the next day, she's like, "Did you read it yet?" <laughs> Three hundred put page rpg manual she's like did you read that yet i'm like no hun, it's gonna be a couple weeks oh <laughs> um but she's very excited so if you're interested in this which i encourage you to check it out especially if you love looking at rpg books like i do you can get just the book by itself comes with a pdf 60 dollars. these things tend to cost about that much now so it's expensive but artwork's expensive um mm-hmm. but it yeah. goes up from there if you like all the other stuff you can get player journals and art prints and an explorer's box and a potion deck and vending machine dice set and (laughs) what else they got here a dm screen they got stickers they got pins they got other dice sets they've got handouts it it goes on and on like you could spend i think their highest package is 360 dollars comes with all that stuff sure and people are backing it because it does look cool It, it does look cool so um this is me i'm not will so i can't tell you all why this is an interesting rpg setting (laughs) but i can tell you i love the look of it and i like the background that they've talked about and i will probably pick this up 
Well, it's fascinating that they were able to get this close to the IPs and still legally be able to put this out because it is close, my friend. Yeah, it, it is. But also, like, when you read through some of, like, the samples, it it's all unique. Like, they're mm-hmm. being creative. They're just, like, being within that kind of world and subset. And there's a lot of, like, Ghibli-inspired stuff out there. They oh, don't yeah. seem to mind. Like, as long as you're not stealing their characters, they don't seem to care. So, it's cool. I, I like that they went for it. And it seems to work. Obviously, I haven't read the full book. But flipping through to Gen Con and looking at it here, I'm like, this looks looks like they pulled it off. So That's no, great. All right. Well, let me let me talk about something. <laughs> talking about kind of close to IPs and yet somehow it's being produced. And I generally don't think or look at these games, but because it's so on the nose, I had to check it out. On Kickstarter right now is a game called Dungeon Cart. Race against your evil riles in this fast-paced board game for two-day players featuring the villainous bosses from Boss Monster. My friends, <laughs> they've made Mario Kart. It's Mario yeah, Kart. It's Mario Kart. It's, it's yeah. Mario Kart. <laughs> they did it. <laughs> the crazy people, they did it. They made Mario Kart. It looks, it's it's Mario Kart. Is it Mario Kart, Anthony? It's Mario Kart, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's 100%. And like all the emails, because I'm on their mailing list, it's just like, with without using the word Mario, it's all like, <laughs> like watch out for that legally distinct flying shell that may or may not be blue, because we were coming at you with Dungeon Cart. So this game is absolutely positively a spectacular table presence because you're doing Mario Kart. So it is a number of different hex boards and you have translucent standees as one of the boss monsters. If you have not played boss monster, we played it way back in the day and it's had multiple iterations and expansions and things like that. Primarily, you're the boss monster. You're one of these, again, legally distinct IP characters from Nintendo or Legend of Zelda, and you are trying to stop the heroes from, you know, messing you up. Well, now you get to play them <laughs> as actually a Mario Kart. So it's it's what you expect. It's bombastic. It's it's out there. It's pretty much, again, it, it reminds me of that Simon model with, like, their zombies where they're like, hey, we're producing a game. We can We can throw this in here. So, again... There's a lot of characters that you will recognize. The gameplay itself, obviously, very simple, very simplistic. You get a, a player board that has, you know, you're racing and you'll be able to up or down your speed. Each character has special abilities. And then you are against the other players at the table as you move around the table. And as Anthony said, you throw legally distinct turtle shells and other magic spells at players. And then again, of course, that whoever comes in first wins because shenanigans, right? That's the game. It's on Kickstarter. Um, I'm not backing it, but you should take a look at it because it's hilarious. <laughs> just for the just Definitely for the lulls, right? I yeah. think so. I, I I think so. I think you know we talked about this before. You got to moon pie some things. Like you got to go out, out out there on a limb, and they did, and I appreciate that. And I hope to see it at a game table. I will not play it, but I will love to see that at a game table and just marvel at it's just it's it's out there. It's great. So uh check it out. You got about 10 days to go to pick it up. I think for Anthony's you got about just over two days to pick it up. Um what about you, Jeff? Is there anything that just blew your mind here that may or may not be a legally distinct IP? 
Yeah. Um, for me, what I've been sort of waiting on with uh, um, a lot of anticipation is uh, I backed on Settled uh, oh, a yeah. while back, and that was awesome. actually due to be here um, not too long ago, but then they ran into an issue with some of the trades. Sure. Um, and Orange Nebula does some really fantastic uh, production work, and they just wanted everything to be just right. Uh, their communication is always uh, fantastic. Um, and so there's been a little bit of a delay. So uh, it might be another month or so, but uh, it's coming. And it's something that I'm really looking forward to because um, I've, I've always liked the sort of adventure sort of games, um, you know, games like Ryan Lockett's games, like Sleeping Gods and uh, Near yeah. and Far and things like that. Um, and the Sherlock Holmes uh, games and, you know, any of those kind of narrative uh, sort of games, other than uh, I wasn't a big fan of uh, Arabian Nights. Um, every time you did like what seemed to be the right thing, someone would turn you into something. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yes. It was all very random yeah. and very bizarre. Um, but I kind of fell in love with Orange Nebula with Vindication. Um, really, sure. really enjoyed that game. Um, and so when I saw Unsettled, I was like, oh, okay, this looks like this might be kind of what I have been looking for, for that sort of exploration sort of feel. Because I did back Seventh Continent. Yes. And Seventh Continent was an interesting game, and I, I enjoyed it, but it kind of became a little bit of a slog um, as I was kind of exploring, um, you know, the island that was the Seventh Continent, and mm -hmm. um, I, I, it, it didn't really hold my attention, sure. um, but it sounds like Unsettled should, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and the only other one that I kind of, I, I wish that um, I had recorded with you guys a little bit earlier uh, because I am a big Martin Wallace fanboy. Um, oh, yeah. Mm, I like a lot of Martin Wallace's games. Um, he's been a little bit of a hot streak for me recently. Um, I I mean, I love Anno 1800. I loved Australia. Um, you know, just some really good games. Loved Rocketman. Had no idea why that game hasn't gotten more love um, than uh, it's received. But um, when I grew up, here we go. Here's Grandpa. Back in the day, <laughs> when I was a youngin, um, there were a lot of adventure books, um, and they were kind of like choose your own adventure kind of things. And so some of them were these kind of cool fantasy adventure books. And so what they've done is they've taken um, uh, some of the titles from uh, those old uh, Steve Jackson, uh, Ian Livingston um, kind of uh, books that were choose your own adventure kind of almost like little mini RPGs um, and they turned them into a card game. And so um, each deck in this um, uh, game is going to be um, one of the books basically. And so it's called, you know, fighting fantasy adventures. Um, it's actually on game found, but I think it's only got a couple of days left. So I'm not sure it might be done by the time this episode airs. Um, but it was reasonably priced, which is hard to find nowadays. Um, and, you know, they might be open for late pledges and things like that um, after the, the campaign's over. So, you know, you might want to go and check it out um, because it was really um, kind of a, an interesting project, kind of gave me some nostalgia vibes. And, uh, you know, Martin Wallace has been a little hit and miss with some of his card games. Uh, Old Men of the Forest, truly a terrible game. <laughs> Um, but he's also done some really, really um, uh, solid games and, uh, you know, wonderful games that I've been enjoying for many, many years. So um, that's one. If you're if you're into that kind of 
uh, game. It's not just a solo, it's for one to four, it's cooperative, sounds like a little dungeon crawl with cards. Um, looks like it's relatively light. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, a, a copy of the game is 35 bucks. So wow, that's not too bad, you know? No. So you get like four different kind of decks of cards, each of which is a different adventure. Um, and I guess if it sells well, they'll probably do more books, you know, but for right now, it's four books for 35 bucks. And that's something that I'd be willing to take a flyer on. Um, so that's kind of what, what I've been thinking about, guys. I've seen those floating around, the ads for them. Yeah, it's. I was like, oh, that's some old school stuff. It like very Steve Jackson-y vibes, but then Martin Wallace's name on there. Always gets my attention, yep. Absolutely. All right, so that's what we want to hit the table. Let's talk about the games that did hit the table this week at our At the Table. We'll let you know if the game's a buy and you should run out and pick that game up. If that game's a play and you should sit down and play it, if that game is a dodge and you should avoid it, or in fact, that game is a dreaded burn, and let's be honest, you know, it's not Lurkana, right? Because Lurkana's the best. So we all agree, Lurkana, right? Mm-hmm. Lurkana sure tattoos sure. all around, right? <laughs> that's what we're doing? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's cool, man. Ride or die with Lurkana? That's, that's going to be a thing, right? Because it's the best game. So, all right. So, Anthony, what have you played this week? Uh, it's a card game. Is it Lurkana? No. Ah, oh, come so. on, man. <laughs> oh, so excited there for a second. I know. I know you were. Uh, this I picked this up at uh, Gen Con. Uh, it's called Mindbug First oh. Contact. Uh, Chris, you played it too, actually. So. I did. It, it sucked my mind out, and I don't remember it. Yeah. But okay. <laughs> that is the danger the of the Mindbug. So. That's 100% true. Brain. Yeah, and to be fair, there's no other games <laughs> but Urkana these days, so let's go. That's true. That's the yeah. only one left. All right, so this was on, uh, I think, Kickstarter uh, mm -hmm. a year or two ago, and it was the big name on it is Richard Garfield, but it's a whole design team. It's Scaff Elias, Marvin Hagen, Christian Cudell. Richard Garfield, I imagine, did some punch up, right? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think this is probably an original design of his, but I don't know. I don't, I don't have the Kickstarter open in front of me. Um, but the Ghost Galaxy booth had copies of it uh, alongside Keyforge, so I picked one up. Um, have had a chance to play. Chris, you and I played it a couple times at the airport. We did, which is not the greatest place to play anything, but we did play it there. And I've played it a couple times at home with the kids. And so here's here's the gist of the game. Very simple. Uh, you have a single deck of cards that everybody shares. You draw up ten at the start of the game, and that's your deck. And that's it. You play the game with that. Um, you have two mind bugs, and you just take turns taking actions. Um, you can, as an action, you can play a card or you can attack. Uh, if somebody plays a card, you can play a mind bug on that card, unless there's like something blocking you from doing that, and then it becomes yours. So if you're like, I want that, now it's mine, and that's it, right? But you can only do that twice per game. Games are very, very short, like 15 minutes. Probably the best way to do this would be best two out of three, because then you're looking at 30, 40 minutes. Um, and the cards have a, a variety of different things on them, right? So they have some of them have uh, special abilities that are familiar, so like taunt or tanking ability. Um, some of them are poisonous, so if they attack, they're going to kill whatever they hit, no matter what. Uh, some of them can take multiple hits, but generally what they are is they each have a number on them. That's their attack power, and if you attack something, if the number is higher than that other thing, you destroy it. Easy, 
right? So it's it's all very much just like matching up numbers and checking them. The strategy to the game, the tactics to the game comes in. When do you play what you have in your hand? When do you kind of pull your opponent to use their mind bug? Like, do you have a combination of cards in there that you can push out that'll make them want to steal something that they, you can then counter later on? And that's, I think, the thing that you really have to wrap your brain around is that component is working with the mind bug, getting inside your opponent's head. Because without that, it's really just you both have 10 cards and you're playing out the biggest number and then kind of working around the keywords and abilities. And it's fun and it's fine and the kids like it, but it's not particularly challenging. But when you really mm-hmm. start playing it, it's like a bluffing game on top of those card mechanics. It's very interesting right? You do have to make some strategic think- decisions. You have to think about what's in your deck. You have to think about what your opponent might have. You don't really know because you're only pulling like a percentage of the deck into your hand. Uh, and it does some very interesting things as a result, right? So you can drop down your really big powerful card. You throw out your Luchator, which mm-hmm. is Frenzy and a power of nine. So it can hit twice at power nine. But then maybe you have a couple poison cards sitting in your hand as well so you're like i hope my opponent steals this because it's super powerful and then i'll just kill it with one of these poison <laughs> cards right uh and so that's what the game ends up becoming and i find that very interesting and fun um you can have bad hands and you can have bad games but because it only takes 10 or 15 minutes i don't think that's a killer this isn't it's not even like Keyforge, where if you pull a bad deck you're stuck playing it for 30 or 40 minutes it's relatively straightforward it's super quick so if you have a bad hand or a bad game it's going to be over soon um the kids typically get very frustrated with things like this and they didn't really because it was very straightforward like you read the card you do the thing (laughs) boom you're done so i'm happy to have picked it up i don't know that it rises to the level of a buy-bye uh i think in my situation i personally am happy to own it and will play it more i think it needs more stuff which I know exists because it was a Kickstarter. I just have that base set. So I'm, I might go out and hunt down some more cards that add a little more variability to the game. But it's fun. It's a solid play. I'm glad I own it. It was only like 20 bucks. So like the, the base set, I don't know where this is available. because I, I think they just got it at Gen Con. But if you see it out there, I recommend giving it a play because uh, it's an interesting take on this type of game. Just with that one little mechanical tweak, which is always cool to me when a game does that they're like what about everything you know but this too and you're like oh cool that just changes everything i love it um don't have to worry about paying for cards you just play them and then you can just steal each other's cards great so mind bug first contact surprisingly good excellent yeah no i got a chance to play this with you at the airport where we just had wrapped up gen con and I think our brains were already mind bugged a little bit. So yeah, it was, it was not it, the best circumstances to play. Nah. The weather was terrible. And we had oh, to get man. on a plane soon. Oh, like, that was, there's a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> we talked about that earlier, but it is a very good game for what it does. And I think it, the mind bug cards, everyone, each player gets two cards. It's an interesting idea because when you play these, you know, quasi deck builders attack the other, pl- you know, one-on-one player kind of thing. It is always going to be the randomness of the deck, what you get in your hand, and then you win or you lose. I mean, yes, there is a little bit of elements of as far as like, when do I play this or I play that? But having the mind bugs is a really smart idea to kind of help manage the chaos of the deck. 
because there's a lot of cards. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of key words in the game. And for example, sneaky, right? So if you have a sneaky character on your side and they don't, they can't stop you. So mind bug, right? So it looks to be this kind of very tactical card game. A lot of fun. It has, it has a very smash up kind of look to it, I would say, mm. but it, yeah, absolutely. Request, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it, it primarily comes down to, as Anthony, you were saying like a bluffing game, right? Those two mind bug yeah. cards need to be played. Could you win without yeah. them? Probably possibly, but it's, it's a rare day. Like if you picked up a rare hand that just rocks, but those mind bugs is the whole game. So you're looking at your hand. What will you pull? Should you make the person discard cards? Should you put something strong down or a bunch of weak cards? Ah, my bugs. Look at the my bugs because that's that's <laughs> the game. You know, I mind bug you, but you mind bug. Yeah, that's the game. So it gets a play for me. I, th- I think it was an interesting dynamic. I do think, it, like you said, Anthony, I don't want to get away from like the quickness of this game, which is what it's meant to be. But I do think it should have had at least one other element or trick to it, whether it was like a scoring opportunity on the side or some missions or goals or something like that. But otherwise, yeah, it's a fun little game. Yeah. And maybe, maybe the other stuff has that again, I'm not, I don't have the Kickstarter open in front of me, so I don't know what other stuff they released. Uh, But I imagine there's more coming assuming that people like it. Well, just mind bug them and get the stuff for yourself. That's all I'm saying. True. (laughs) Should walk around the cards, please walk around the convention and just carry the mind bug cards with you. Be like, I like that game. Mind bug. They're like, what? No, 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 no. Come (laughs) on. We all, we all recognize the rules here. I I get the thing. So I got to play a game that also I got at Gen Con 2023. This was a review copy from CGE. This is the lost runes of Arnak, the missing expedition. Uh, two to leaders, solo slash two player campaign, and there's a lot more to it. I am not going to review the campaign because it has spoilers in it, but I will talk generally about the campaign because I think you should know about this game. So, if you are a fan of Lost Ruins of Arnak, you're probably going to pick this up because, as I mentioned, it has two new leaders, and that's awesome. In addition to the two new leaders, It also has additional cards, uh, additional challenges. It has two additional uh, research track boards. And if you know anything about Arnak, it's all about the boards. It's all about the researching. If you have not played Lost Ruins of Arnak, primarily it's a quasi-deck builder, worker placement game, and then a race to the top to get the most points possible. There is another expansion that came out not too long ago with, you know, leaders, which gave you some more asymmetry at the table you had a character that character was known for doing a thing and it had its own particular play style it wasn't game breaking but it did enough of a different thing that depending on what character you played it it gave you a different feel and i played um arnek a lot and it does get a little samey and i love the fact that the leader is in there that's one of my favorite parts of any board game that i get to play different types of characters and it really opens up this world. It, it would be a very bland world if there wasn't different people entering this mythical kind of jungle. The game itself, as far as I mentioned, comes with a campaign. Not going to talk about too much. Uh, some elements you'll see from the previous uh, free online edition if you wanted to play some of the expedition elements. It's all packaged here. It's a very innovative, fun 
engagement. I played it solo. You could also play it two players, which I think it might play a little bit better as two players because in the two player mode, you you have the ability to transfer over one, you know, like this carrier pigeon. You get to carry over materials back and forth. And that's kind of fun. You can talk during the game. It's not one of those like you have to stay silent. And it just adds more to the game. So I'll, maybe at a later point, if I get a chance to play as two players, I'll talk more about the campaign. But I will say the campaign's good. I mean, it's Euro game good. I would say it's better than Scythe Rise of Fenris good, Ooh, okay. Um, which I thought was okay. I didn't think it was great. I thought it was okay. Like when I finished Rise of Fenris, the campaign, I was like, okay, cool. I see what you did there. This is better. This is actually better than that. Uh, there's, It's not pandemic legacy level at all. Do not go into this thinking you're getting some wondrous RPG kind of element but the campaign is good. What I got to play with most most is I got to play with the two new leaders and the different tracks. First off, the tracks itself, the research tracks are worth the game worth picking up the expansion alone because they're colorful, they're bright, they're different. And if you played our neck again, it's very much like I need to move here and here and here. This really opens the game up. There's new sites, there's new cards, there's new things, but really what you came here for, or what I came here for was the new expedition leaders. So first up, you get a journalist. So the journalist is trying to find out what happened to this lost professor. And again, we always appreciate when board games are trying to help out (laughs) academics. So we love that. And this journalist has a unique mechanic that he's trying to write stories about the different guardians that he encounters. So every time he's able to encounter and come out with a win here, he gets a newspaper token that goes to his board. And that allows him to unlock special abilities on his particular board. It's a really easy, simple, fun mechanic. It's really great. Then there's the mechanic. Mechanic is fantastic. And she's all about tinkering. So she's trying to fix up all these engines. She has this engine herself. And what I like about her is that you get to choose throughout the game two different gold widgets throughout. And you decide what you want to put into your machine. When you put these things in the machine, you get to turn it and you get to benefit from the stuff that's on the tokens. You have cards that allow you to activate the machine. Same thing with the journalist. There's cards that let you activate the newspaper articles and such. And then there's Rusty. There's a monkey that works (laughs) with the mechanic. And that's a lot of fun too because monkeys are awesome and they're just really fun to have. Uh, Beyond that, (laughs) there's a lot of additional materials here. Like I said, there's a waterfall temple. There's a tree temple. This box is packed with stuff. Anthony, I know you bought this game. Um, got the review copy. It's a keeper. It's a buy for me. I was going to pick it up beforehand. Uh, I like Runes of Arnak a lot. This made me love it. These are my two favorite leaders out of all of them. In particular, this is a better expansion than Expedition. I mean, the Expedition leaders. Um, you need both because you need to play with all of the, the bobbles and bits. But this is great. Yeah, I've, I've all I've done so far is play with the new leaders, but I do like them both quite a bit. Um, I anytime you give me leaders, asymmetrical powers, whatever in a game like this, I'm gonna just go through them one at a time until I've played them all. Uh, I gotta rank them in my own head. <laughs> so uh, this game it does a really good job of giving you that asymmetry, and I really enjoy it. I'm looking forward to the campaign. Haven't had a chance to play it yet, but yeah. great to hear everything is good. Yeah, Min and Elwin did a great job here. The artwork is fantastic. It really is evocative of this theme it's very thematic and it's just more of good stuff again i love that because it can't the base game can get kind of samey 
when you know that there's certain cards here, this really opens the game up. All right, Jeff, what about you? What did you play this week? Well, um, I also had the chance to uh, play some games that kind of uh, were Gen Con. My daughter was actually working Gen Con and uh, was able to uh, mule some games for me, which is awesome. Oh, very nice. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, she picked me up a, a game called uh, Lunar Rush. Um, that's from a very small uh, sort of indie publisher called Dead Alive Games, uh, designed by Stephen Skippy Brown. And the Ooh. Skippy just felt it for me. Um, I love the yeah. Skippy because um, it's in quotes, right? Right. As is, It's on the box, Stephen Skippy Brown. So I love that about him. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting game. Um, it is a game where you are um, sort of shuttling back and forth between the moon um, and Earth. You're trying to build up a lunar base, which is something that is kind of current. Um, there's talk about, you know, permanent um, uh, settlements and, and whatnot on the moon and making some bases there. Congratulations to India for landing on the South Pole there. Um, Absolutely. You know, kudos mm -hmm. to them. That's awesome. Um, and, you know, so it, it kind of caught my radar. Um, and the thing that I really liked about it is kind of an economic game, but also sort of a um, tableau, maybe, if you want to think of it that way, building game. You're sort of building your lunar base and you're sort of upgrading the different parts of your lunar base. Um, and you're trying to um, find and refine um, different kinds of lunar materials into things that are going to be of value and then shipping them back to Earth. Um, the, the real sort of uh, key to the game, the sort of thing that makes it very unique, is that these routes between Earth and the Moon are divided into three different categories, which are actually sort of based in the science of the sort of uh, paths and trajectories that rockets would take um, getting from Earth to the Moon, depending on the payload that they're carrying. Um, mm. Because you yeah, always have to look at the uh, trade-off between uh, your weight or mass that you're trying to boost into orbit and beyond, um, and then the amount of fuel that you have to bring in order to do that. So the way the game does this is very clever. There's three different paths. There's the short path, there's the medium path, and there's a the long path. And so if you're um, really looking to just bring like one or two things up uh, that might be crucial components that you might need in order to build out a different um, uh, laboratory or a different refinery on your moon base, uh, you might try and choose uh, the short route. Uh, because you only need to get a couple of things. So whatever you send is going to basically arrive the same turn, which is awesome. Um, if you want to send a little bit more, you can take the medium route, but you're going to have a little delayed gratification there. You can load things up, but it's going to take a couple of turns uh, for you to have that actually arrive. And then finally, you can send a boatload of stuff, but it's going to take basically three turns in order to get that stuff um, uh, you know, sent up um, to the moon or sent back to Earth. Um, and so it, you kind of have to time it. Um, and turn order is very important. So there's like a, a, you know, sort of a bid for turn order in the game, which adds a lot of tension. So um, there's a lot of individual, they call them gold buildings or facilities that you can build that sort of differentiate one base from another, kind of giving you a direction that you can go into. So, um, I, you know, I'm not going to say it's a buy because I've only played it twice, um, but it's definitely a play. Um, I really have enjoyed my plays of it. Um, I haven't played it enough to know whether the game is completely balanced or not, but it was really intriguing and a lot of fun. So uh, Lunar Rush hit the table. Um, I got my copy of a GNC, 
uh, not GNC, the uh, vitamin place, which is what everybody thinks I'm saying. <laughs> it's a GNC, um, meaning it's, it's an actual C, um, and it's the new Carl Chudik King. And I'm a big uh, Carl Chudik fan, love innovation, um, love Glory to Rome. Um, all of his games I find really fascinating in a kind of a mad scientist kind of a way. Um, right. I don't know how he manages to make his games playable, but he does. And they're always interesting and always a blast. So uh, this game is very interesting because you're basically, you have different islands in the Aegean Sea and you are sort of uh, colonizing those islands and trying to produce goods on those islands and then ship those goods back to your home islands. And it doesn't sound very exciting, but like every Carl Chittick game, it's incredibly interactive. It's incredibly like, you know, you throat punch the person next to you and take their <laughs> stuff. You, um, yeah. it's, it's just a really interesting game. So I've really enjoyed that. Um, if you like Carl Chittick games, I'd say it's probably um, a buy. Um, it's definitely a play. Uh, my only concern about the game is that um, I actually think it might be over a little more quickly than I would like. Um, every the timer of the game is your deck of cards. Everybody has their own deck based on their own civilization, whether it's the, the Spartans or the Athenians or the Phoenicians. And once somebody's draw pile has run out, um, and there are ways that you can kind of accelerate that yourself, and there are ways your opponents can accelerate that. Um, once your draw pile runs out, the game is going to be over relatively quickly after that. Um, and so I almost wish the game could last just a little bit longer. Um, so I haven't totally made up my mind, uh, but if you like Carl Chudok, you like Impulse, you like all of his crazy creations, then I'd say definitely get it. Otherwise, I'd say give it a play. Um, and then finally, I played Barcelona. Uh, this is one that my daughter picked up. Um, and that is a very crunchy game. Um, it's got a lot of spatial elements to it where you're trying to sort of build up the um, uh, new quarter of uh, Barcelona. Um, and you're trying to basically build housing for the people who live in the city. And so you have sort of your workers and you have your nobles and you have your, your middle class and you're trying to kind of build up um, the uh, blocks and the streets of the city of Barcelona. You're trying to kind of gain renown. You're trying to uh, build special buildings in, um, in the squares, and you have a little trolley that you run around and drop passenger off for no reason that I can see, but it's cool. Um, it's definitely a Eurofest kind of a game. If you like a heavy, puzzly kind of a game, then it is definitely uh, a play. For me, it's not a buy, um, and it's not a buy only because um, I'm just a little... There's a little bit of a disconnect between the theme and the gameplay. Uh, the gameplay is super abstracted. Um, and the way the scoring works is very interesting. Um, don't get me wrong, but it's kind of like, you know, oh, well, when this track of this type of citizen fills up, it's going to trigger the scoring. And here's the random scoring tile that might have nothing to do with the citizens. It might have to do with how many bonus tiles you've accumulated or um, how many um, uh, of the sort of uh, uh, broad boulevard areas you've built up in or whatever it happens to be. And so it's very Eurolicious, but I don't necessarily know that I would call it thematic. 
Um, but you know, hey, I like Stefan Feld games, and they're often not very thematic either. So yes. uh, definitely a play. Um, uh, but I, I don't know that I would necessarily say this is a buy, especially if you're looking for something that kind of captures that historical kind of feel like London does, you know, um, right. London kind of takes you through the different sort of eras and you see the progression of rebuilding the city of London with, with, you know, exact landmarks and, um, dealing with, um, you know, the, the poor population and the paupers and, um, you know, trying to figure out how to, um, handle your poverty that's growing in the city and, and all this kind of stuff. It's, that's a much more kind of um, thematic experience in my mind than Barcelona is, but it's a solid game. Excellent. All right, so that's all the games that hit the table this week. Now on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we have brought Jeff, our good friend here, to talk about one of his favorite genre of board games, Civilization Games, and in particular, one really great game that he wants to let you know about. Jeff, why don't you take it away? Sure. Um, yeah, I've been a fan of Civilization games really ever since um, I started playing. I mean, even that first Catan card game has a, a bit of a, a mini sort of a civilization feel as you're building up these little villages into towns and uh, with aqueducts and different buildings and whatnot. Um, I like the feeling of progression. I like the story that's told as you watch things build. Um, so I've always been really interested in civilization games because to me, they feel very satisfying. I'm, I'm generally more into building than I am destroying. Uh, it doesn't mean that I won't, you know, just quietly just like, shh, shh, and, you know, slip a knife <laughs> in um, <laughs> if I need to in a game, um, you know, just put you in, go to sleep. It's okay. Go to sleep. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, I'm not really into dice chuckers where, you know, uh, you spend a lot of time building up um, your sort of uh, armies and forces, and then you have the big battle, and then whoever happens to win the battle wins the game. I mean, I, that's not necessarily the kind of story that I really enjoy, I, and I like seeing the progression. I like there being different paths. Um, and so over the years, I've played a lot of different civilization games. If, if it's a civilization game, I'm almost sure to have backed it, bought it, tried it, um, whatever it happens to be. Um, and, you know, people need to understand that what I call a civilization game might not be what you call a civilization game. And that's totally fine. Um, we all have different sort of opinions. Like, for example, um, there's a great old uh, game by, uh, what is it? I think it's a, a Burned Eisenstein or Eisenstein uh, Peloponnese. Um, you know, that's a really cool game. Um, I don't know that I'd necessarily call it a civilization game. It has some of the aspects. You have growth, you have disasters, you have things that you're, but it's it's not quite giving you that narrative, that story. Um, people talk about Seven Wonders. Listed as a civilization game. I don't necessarily consider it a civilization game. If you do, awesome. Um, not necessarily something that I would consider. Um, it's a little too abstracted. Same thing with um, games that are Civ-ish, but have a short sort of a window that you're kind of looking through, um, like Age of Empires mm -hmm. 3. Um, nowadays, that's called, uh, um, what is it, Age of Discovery, Rover's Age of Discovery. Yep. Fantastic game. Um, but, and, and it has interesting pieces and bits to it with, um, you know, you're building up your infrastructure, you're going out, you're exploring you're exploiting. It's got that sort of 4X kind of a thing there. 
um, doing terrible things to the native peoples of the lands. Um, so like, I, I get that. It's got that little peak, that little window, but I don't necessarily get the feeling that I'm building a civilization from the ground up. So for me, a Civ game needs to kind of have that feel. So, you know, I would say everything for me started with civilization, um, the, the oldie, but the goodie from 1980. Um, and that was primarily because of that archaeological succession chart, right? <laughs> Which is this very dry kind of thing where it's like, you're, you're trying to sort of get the prerequisites you need to advance. And then when you advance, it's going to give you a benefit. And the other thing about Civilization, the original game that really got me was the trading. It was very freewheeling, um, you know, and it really kind of gave you that feeling of expanding, going to different parts of the world, trading, trying to collect different trade goods, trying to uh, selectively use your military. If you attack too much, you're going to leave yourself so weakened that you're going to get taken over. Um, it just had a really great sort of narrative arc to it, which I really love, especially advanced civilization. Um, then I kind of think about games like TI3, right? So Twilight Imperium mm. 3 came out 2005. Um, so we're jumping way ahead. All right. And, and I'm sure there's other games in there, like Vinci's in there. Um, other games like that. I don't know that I necessarily call them civilization games. Age of Renaissance is in there, but I never played that. Uh, TI3, really an interesting game set in space, but you do have that sort of idea of building and there is a progression and a narrative arc. Now, it often ends in a big conflict, which I'm not super fond of, but man, one of the things to me that makes TI3 um, and from what I understand, uh, Twilight Imperium 4 shine is that politics space, that the whole notion of you know, vote casting and what what sort of laws are, and what sort of things are going to go into effect that we all have to deal with. Um, absolutely love that because it's not just about the projection of power from a military standpoint, but there's political power and there's intrigue. And I love that in a civilization game. Then everything yeah, changed. Yeah, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 of course. I, so what I'm like, I just wanted to jump in because, like, I was wondering if you were going to mention Twilight Imperium because, mm -hmm. to me, that is one of the best Civ games. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I would say so is that it has all four X's, combat's mm -hmm. important, but it isn't the core of the game, which I feel like a lot of the space 4X games end up being where they're like, oh, you just got to yeah. fight each other and shoot a lot. It's yeah. you do it when you need to do it to achieve your objective. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you are working with other people or against other people and in that sense and it really does feel like you're part of that galactic civilization so yeah i am 100 with you on that one yeah it's, it's definitely and it's one of those games it's a real experience right um mm, it's something yeah. that you you come away with a story and and to me that's like a hallmark mm -hmm. of a really good civilization game um everything changed in 2006 right that's when through the ages came out um and this was the civilization games without a map, um, which just blew everybody's mind, I know at the time. Right. Uh, it's a brilliant design. Um, I kind of call it micromanage your civilization. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, that's a it's good way very, to call it. <laughs> it has a very broad kind of a feel to it, but it's all about the nitty gritty details of, you know, do I have enough iron? Do I have enough food? You know, what's my population? Are they happy? Love that. Love the idea that like you need to keep your your population content and happy. 
um, really enjoyed the fact that there was corruption, right? It's an incredible mm. pain in the butt to deal with, but the concept of corruption, <laughs> fantastic, right? Um, so many innovative things in there. Um, you can have conflict and wars and things without actually having to have a map on the board. There's that progression through all the different ages, hence the name of the game. Uh, really just a, a fantastic game. So that was one that really, that was actually the first game I ever traded for, um, was through the ages um, on board games. So uh, fast forward to 2009, Martin Wallace puts out Rise of Empires. Um, a bit of an underrated uh, Civ game, in my opinion. Um, it's abstract for sure, but you do have a definite feeling of progression with technology in particular. Uh, this was another game that I thought did technology very well, just like Through the Ages did, right? Everything in Through the Ages is about upgrading your facilities, upgrading things, right? And Rise of Empires did that um, very well um, in a very short playtime, which I really appreciated. Um, then we had Sid Meier's uh, Civilization come out um, with the little square cards and the combat system, which was very different and unique. Um, and that one was was a pretty interesting game as well. Um, but to me, there were a few things that just kind of took me out of the story. Um, the idea of like, you know, Lincoln against, <laughs> um, you know, um, uh, an, an ancient leader um, with, with kind of whatever nation or sort of leadership that you were trying to do in that version of the game. I recall that. Um, I recall it being a little more combat heavy than I, than I really wanted. Um, and the yeah. combat card system was kind of wonky, um, but it had the exploration, loved the exploration, um, loved going and, and sort of exploring the map. So that was like a, a near hit for me, but then comes the one that really just, just solidified for me, and that's Clash of Cultures. So Clash of Cultures, especially with the expansion, which you can now get in the Monumental Edition uh, for a pretty reasonable price nowadays. Um, Back when it first came yeah. out, I'm like, that's preposterous. You want me to pay $99 for a game? I'll never do that. <laughs> yeah, that all changed. Um, yeah, but yeah. that game just to me had like so many of the things that just checked off the boxes for me. The technology tree is a thing of beauty in that game. It is very difficult to wrangle because there's a lot for you to have to remember. So there's a little bit of that micromanaging thing going on with the tech tree, but uh, the, the way in which you can customize that, the different paths that you can explore with that are just delicious, right? You have the exploration part, which I love. You have barbarians with an AI system that works extremely well, really easy to manage. Um, you have differentiated military units. You have differentiated city components where each thing that you build in a city gives you a different benefit or an ability or something of that nature. And the rules that, that uh, Christian wrote for that game and, and the systems he came up with are, in my opinion, just a thing of beauty. Um, the idea of the size of the city is the range of the city. Uh, the number of cities is equal to the max size of each of those cities. So if I have three little cities on the board, each of those cities can have uh, a total of three parts or pieces to them. Just fantastic kind of um, easy to remember, at least for me, rules that made it very thematic, right? You couldn't have this big, huge, massive city 
and all these little settlements scattered around the board. That's not really the way things worked. Um, it's sort of the rising tide lifts all boats kind of a thing, right? Um, and so you had exploration, you had um, uh, events that would happen, you had objectives to give you a little bit of a sense of um, maybe a, an overall strategic plan or objectives. Um, it just, just kind of, you had wonders that you could build. It had just about everything. Um, and in the new edition, um, there's a lot of negotiation. You can trade stuff. You can, so that harkens back to civilization where, you know, you could pretty much trade anything you wanted to. Um, you know, I got this great objective card that'll really work well for you. Um, and you can lie. Okay. <laughs> you know, people will remember that, <laughs> but it reminds me of civilization. You would say to somebody, you know, I got this great card and it's actually, you know, a disaster card that you passed off to somebody. Um, so really click just about every single box. I wish it had a little bit of that politics kind of phase to it. Um, that might be the only thing that I kind of missed, but other than that, definitely an amazing game. Um, now you can contrast that with Nations, which came out later. And Nations to me was like an entirely disconnected experience. Like if I'm playing Rome, but I'm building Stonehenge, I have a problem with that. Um, the way in which that game progressed, um, the, the sort of, uh, it, it had a lot of like track, you know, there's a lot of things that you were kind of trying to progress on that were abstractions of things that were going on. You had the limited space on your board. You couldn't build this sprawling kind of civilization. You had to keep swapping out cards and things. And I'm like, why would people do that? I, you know, I understand that some things are lost to time, but, you know, seriously, like I would have kept this technology. I would have kept this building. Um, so there were some odd restrictions in the game. Um, and that kind of broke that for me. Um, so I, I left that very disappointed. Um, then the Golden Ages came out in 2014, which was a really interesting Eurified Civ game because it had the tech tree, it had the exploration, it had some basic sort of combat-ish kind of stuff, but it was very streamlined, uh, very Eurified, and it was a decent game, but it became a really good game with the cults and, um, I think it's called Cults and Cultures uh, expansion. And that is still a game that I really enjoy playing when I don't have the time to play a big civilization game. So that one was kind of a hit for me. Um, Tapestry came along. I love Tapestry. I enjoy playing it. I don't know that I necessarily feel like it's a Civ game. Um, there's going to be people who are going to really be upset about that. And, and <laughs> if you feel it's a Civ game, awesome. Um, I would put it in that sort of Age of Discovery, Seven Wonders, Peloponnese. Like, it's a really cool game. And you do get to build up your little town, your map in front of you. But um, the, the progressions, like, how can I be a civilization that has discovered space flight and yet I'm still way, way back in these other areas and it can feel a little disconnected from, or, or not disconnected, it can feel a little uh, improbable, right? Like you, yeah. you're trying to think about your civilization and you're like, yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> it's like, you're trying it's to- so kind of, abstracted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel like you're can't... describing the review we gave the game. We're just like, it's not a Civ game. I don't know. It's like a two and a half X-ish. Yeah. Like... yeah. 
it's a really cool game. Don't get me wrong. I, I have it in my collection. Yeah. I enjoy playing it. My daughter loves it. Um, but I don't know that it really feels like a sieve. So I was a little disappointed in that. And then came Mosaic. So Mosaic comes out in 2022. And boy, it is a very, very good game um, because it just has a lot of freedom, a low rules overhead, a lot of choices. Um, you're definitely kind of focusing on icon collection, and that can be sort of maybe a downside. Um, you know, if but you know, I I worked on and and adore Terraforming Mars, which is tag. So you kind of have that same sort of feel, um, but the technology cards are all different. Um, they they kind of have they have wonderful artwork. It kind of builds. You get that feeling of of your civilization growing, and then you have the map presence. Um, and I love some of the the rules surrounding that. Um, I thought they were very intuitive and very interesting. You know, you can build a city, and then you can have these little towns that surround your city, but you can't just plop towns all over the place. Like they they need to be connected to something, to an urban center. It's like okay, that makes sense to me, right? Um, the the fact that you can sort of build cities in different regions of the world is like these outposts it's like okay that's cool i like that you don't have to daisy chain everything together that offers a lot of freedom a lot of opportunity um you do have a little bit of disconnect when you have the egyptians making you know the roman Colosseum or you know whatever but it it works for me um the only thing about that game that didn't work was the military because the military was simply area control that was it. Yeah. Not really all that interesting. Um, beautiful production, beautiful pieces, but it's like, okay, they're just kind of sitting there and they add a point of influence, you know, whoop de do. Um, <laughs> the expansion came out and it's still kind of whoop de do. Um, but what they offer are what are called war tiles. And so if you take a military action which is one of the things that you can do in mosaic and you decide to uh, engage in a conflict if you take a war tile it has almost like a little um prescription on it right a little recipe and if you can fill that recipe then it's going to have an effect so you're going to get to remove more units you might get to swap out a city of one player for one of your cities they all have very interesting names. Some of them are sort of naval combat centered. Some of them are land combat centered. There's an amphibious landing one. There's all kinds of interesting uh, little war tiles. I'd say there's probably about eight or 10 of them. Um, if I had to guess, I don't have that number, sorry to say, but that added something that I thought was cool. The naval uh, units added something. The new wonders were cool. But most importantly, the new types of buildings were what I thought was the best value um, added to the expansion. So um, it's a really solid game. I really enjoy it, but it has not dethroned Clash of Cultures for me. And that's because I think the every element of Clash of Cultures has been sort of fully described and developed. And you don't have any holes like you do with some of the other designs that I've been talking about. Um, 
And, and I think one of the greatest things that I can say about Clash of Cultures, what, what hooked me on that game instantly, I'd be curious what you guys would have to say about this, was, like I told you, I don't love games that always come down to the big fights. Clash of Cultures, you have objectives that can score you a lot of points. Those objectives might have nothing to do with combat, which is awesome. But what really got me was cultural influence. The idea that my city and my civilization is so awesome that you want to be like me, right? Yeah. So there's a mechanism in Clash of Cultures where you can take an action where you attempt to culturally influence a city of an opponent. Yeah, and the opponent, yeah, yeah, it's, it's absolutely, it's like, hey, I've got blue jeans and rock and roll. <laughs> what do you think of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, let's go to Russia. I have blue jeans and rock and roll. Um, and so like, yeah, you, you would like, you, you attempt to culturally influence another city. And if you do, you get to replace one of their pieces, um, that are surrounding their cities, like a, a fort or an academy or whatever it happens to be with one of yours. Now, the person that had that happen to them, they don't lose the benefit that they get from having that building in the city. But at the end of the game, that building now scores you points. It doesn't score them points. And so I've played this game with people who just went all in for cultural influence and they ended up scoring so many points on the board and then other objectives that they didn't really mess around too much with military. And um, I loved that about the game. I love that. That was the first time I've ever seen a game try to give you a sort of nonviolent way to win. Sure. Um, so many civilization games, you know, it, it's all about conquest. It's all about exploration, exploitation, extermination, all of this kind of stuff. And this was just like, no, man, you just want to be like me because I'm awesome. And <laughs> yeah. you, you just spread your cultural hegemony across the globe. And again, beautiful, beautiful design. How far can your city influence? equal to the number of pieces in that city like what a just a like a brilliant idea so a little city doesn't have a lot of influence big city it casts its shadow far and wide and others see it they see the success and they're like man we should be like those dudes and then sure enough you've culturally influenced them and it's just it's a wonderful wonderful system in that game and it's one of the things that uh made it kind of like solidified as my favorite civilization game. So um, when I think about sort of the, the journey that I've taken with Civ games, and when I look at the design sort of things that have happened in Civ games, um, I can really trace a lot of ideas back to all of these different games. Um, and yet I think Clash of Cultures right now for me still represents the best you need the expansion because yes. that gives you that asymmetry that everybody loves and the asymmetry Absolutely. is awesome yes but boy you have that um i just don't know that the game can be beat um in terms of a civilization game um so that's kind of you know my sort of interpretation of the civilization genre i've thrown a lot of games at you there giving you a little bit of a history rundown in order um you know like what what's your favorite um, civilization game, Chris? That's really hard because I think, Jeff, as you said it, I, and I quite well, there are so many elements to a Civ game. 
And I think there's general discussion amongst players, gamers, publishers, designers, what makes a Civ game, right? Um, as you said, having played Mosaic recently, it's like, okay, there's there's a board, right? Um, mm -hmm. Do you need to have a map? Do you need to have civilizations there? Do they need to be grounded historically? Is how abstract is the civilization game? And at some point, does it take away from the actual game itself? Does it need to have military? Is that an absolute requirement? Is card play enough? If you play, you know, through the ages, typically one of the best kind of Civ games out there, but there's no board. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you never really get the feel of, I have grown. My civilization has grown and stretched and built these things. And yet the card play is out of this world. Like there's nothing like that card play as far as like the crunchiness of building up a civilization. And I think that the point was well said too. We generally think of civilization as our earlier civilizations and not necessarily like Twilight Imperium, right? Because mm -hmm. right. that's a Civ game too. Or you could even argue Gaia Project because you're building out the civilization or Terraforming Mars, um, mm -hmm. you know, or Terra Mystica. I mean, there's so many different games for that. I own a lot of Civ games and I think the greatness of Civ games is you can almost like, I want to play a Civ game. Cool. What ingredients do you want to have? How much military? Do you want to have soft power? Do you want to have economic? How abstract do you want it to be? Um, Antiquity is one of my favorite games. Mm -hmm. That is, yeah, a, a that one. is a, that's a crunchy Civ game. And most people don't think of it as such because they're still buried under all the pieces, but you have to take care of your people <laughs> and then your people die and you need I places know. for them. And, and you and have then the cemetery overwhelms your city and you lose because yeah. there's too many graves. I've never seen a game <laughs> where you lose because there's literally no more space to bury your people. Like that's, that's right. a statement right there. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's 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 probably the greatest mechanic game type in board gaming. Because you can, it's like, you know, ice cream. There's a, they're all ice cream, but they're all different mm -hmm. flavors of a thing. Um, if I want to play something fun, maybe Marinostrum Empires, because it does have that map and civilization thing. It does have trading, because even though you're fighting, you still need to trade. Um, through the ages, as we said before, underwater cities, because it's a thing. And then again, like you said, what, what elements really work well for you? And again, mm -hmm. It depends on that time. I guess if I had to pick, if, if someone said to me, give me the, the most Civ game of Civ games, I would probably pick Antiquity. Just because I think it's the most real. Like, you mm -hmm. produce garbage and it becomes toxic to the land. <laughs> and like, that's a winning strategy. Yeah. Like, I'm a yeah. jerk. I'm building up the civilization. Yeah. Hope you can deal with it because, yeah. and again. I'm going to build all this great stuff out of wood. And then, wait a minute. There's no trees left. You know? Exactly. Like, you've just completely destroyed your own land, right? Yep. yep. And we see that nowadays, I mean, there's some countries actually having conversations about, you know, the water supply, right? Water has become, mm -hmm. so do you build a dam, right? The land is eaten up. So Antiquity doesn't have military, but it does have, I'm going to crowd you out. I'm going to be aggressive in that kind of way. So that's, that's probably mm -hmm. mine. How about you, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, I I thought it was funny. You're like, Nations didn't work for me. I think Nations is one of my favorites, but I'm oh, such okay. a mechanically focused guy. 
I like the puzzle of like the swapping the cards in and out mm-hmm. um, and the asymmetry of the different uh, factions that you can play as. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- some of the other ones, though, that I, I found interesting. Mosaic really clicked for me uh, playing that recently as, as a new one. Um, I was on the fence a couple times because I came to the game late of like going in and getting all the big stuff or picking <laughs> up the expansion. I think I need to play it more. Um, but I really did enjoy how the game simplified without dumbing down mm-hmm. like the core mechanics that we get in these games. That's one of the big challenges I have with a Civ game is it is a lot, right? So if you bring new people to them, there's a bit of a learning curve. There's a lot of teaching to be done and you, you need people who are going to buy into that. It's oh, yeah. a little difficult. Um, yeah, like Clash, for the... example, you know, that's a big teach. That's a heavy lift, right? Um, because not only do you have all of these sort of systems and no matter how well designed they are, um, it's still a lot of rules overhead. Um, you know, you think about like the happiness of your cities, great little system there. You know, if your cities are happy, they're more productive. That makes sense thematically. Um, but if you ask them to work too much, they start to grow unhappy and they can eventually just get really angry with you. Um, it's beautifully done thematically, but it's more rules overhead. So I get where you're going with that. Um, whereas Mosaic, it's like, hey, are you going to pick a card from here, from here, <laughs> from here, or from here? And it really yeah, streamlines yeah. and simplifies it for you. Yeah. Yeah, and I appreciate that because I get to play it more. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like Clash of Cultures is a game that I, I had the original version. I played it once. So I was like, this is fine. And then someone said, you need the expansion. And then I found out that cost $300. <laughs> and so I've never actually played the game properly. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the Monumental Edition because when they announced that, I'm like, oh, yeah, this seems like a game I'm going to love. And I've gone through the rules. And it's just not something I'm able to get people together to play yet. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that game could be it. Everything about it seems like it would be it. Like, all these big sprawling Civ games that have come across my desk, you know, that Sid Meier's Civilization, 100% agree with everything you said there. I loved everything about the idea behind it, but then the different paths to victory weren't equal unless you mm-hmm. threw in all the mm-hmm. expansion stuff and tweaked it a bunch, which that's not fun. Um, so, yeah, this is one of my favorite genres. The video game that really got me into games in general was Civ 2, like back in like 93 or whenever mm-hmm. that came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been playing this type of stuff since I was like eight years old. Sure. And if any board game that can get close to reproducing that feeling is amazing. Right. Right. So can you, do you mind me asking you, like, what is it about nations? So like nations did not work for me. What works sure. for you with nations? Like you, you said that you, know, you got a little bit more of a Euro kind of a feel to it. Like, what what is it about Nations that that is something that really clicked with you? I'm just curious because it didn't click with me. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think it does simplify things quite a bit, mm-hmm. right? The your turns are fairly straightforward, right? You're buying you're buying cards from the tableau or deploying workers. That's pretty much it, mm-hmm. right? With some special card actions or building your wonder kind of off to the side. Um. I actually always kind of liked the playing out of time element of it. I always thought it was fun when I was playing like Civ 3 or Civ 4. Uh, and, you know, like I'm going to build the pyramids, but I'm Brazil. And that's funny <laughs> to me. Um, so that doesn't bother me so much. It And it doesn't have a huge combat component. So you really can just focus on 
building a tableau of cards that work for your particular situation and then optimizing them as you move forward in the different eras. So mm. I liked that you had so many cards for each era, like just hundreds of cards and basically we'll never see the same combination. Optimization. Yeah. Optimization and input randomness. Right. So that, yeah. that actually, yeah, I get that. Like you said that and I'm like, Oh yeah, this is definitely more of an optimization puzzle kind of a game. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. I get that. Um, that's something that I can totally see why that would be uh, something that would, would draw players to it. Right. Uh, because so many games that we uh, play and love have a lot to do with optimization and it can lead to AP, which is one of the things about nations, even though the turn structure was very simple, like you said, um, anytime I played that game at like a full player count, um, oh my God, it never ended. Like it was so, because, yeah. <laughs> and it's that optimization, right? And I never really thought of it that way, but I think you're 100% right. So it's a really cool puzzle. Um, the swapping out of the cards, you know, what's going to be optimal, how, what's going to be the best thing for me to do. Um, but yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. I, cause I was just curious because that one just was like a whiff for me, but a lot of people yeah. like it. So it, it, it's me, you know what I mean? It's definitely me and not yeah, the no, game. Yeah. I don't think it's you necessarily. I think it's just that kind of game. Right? It's, mm -hmm. it's not really as concerned with being thematic as it is with creating a system. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would never in a million years play this with five people or four. <laughs> it's really rough, man. <laughs> we would I, go to game days so and it's like, long. we're going to play Nations at five. And I'm like, oh, God, no. Oh, not me. Um, like I did that twice. Hours. Yeah, I did no. that twice. And I was like, no, I'm never doing that again. So I agree with you there. Yeah. If you're going to play a six hour game, you might as well pull out TI4 and mm -hmm. add on a couple of hours. Right? Yeah. yeah. All right, everyone. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. And this has been Jeff. And we'll save you all a seat in our new and growing civilization. Until then, take care, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me on, guys. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.